0: the best product.
1: I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now.
0: For silent sports done in nature.
1: That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing.
0: Cause no unnecessary harm. Of so organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To so give some love back to this river that doesn't have any, that's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. Monkeys used to live under my bed. That's right, monkeys under my bed. You can tell me it's impossible. Monkeys don't live in California. A child's imagination working in overdrive. And rationally, most of me would know that there couldn't actually be monkeys under my bed. I mean, I checked during the day. And they weren't there every night. But when my bed would start to shake, the overriding thought that would bubble into my mind was monkeys. Under my bed. My instincts were wrong. Very wrong, as I'm guessing you could tell me. Something in that sensory input-to-danger identity process had gone awry. An overreaction. Fortunately, that pathway improved. The more points, correlations, patterns, data in, date out, the better the results. Which is good for someone who likes to spend her time in the outdoors. As I spent time hiking, meeting people, or getting far away from the world of known paths, I honed an outdoor intuition. To get me to places and through situations. I trusted my judgment of character, of what I expected to find, of what I saw. And yet, what if my instincts betrayed me again? Michael McNulty and Trey Johnson's tales will make you question whether your instincts have unknowingly failed you. And George Braun offers an inexplicable tale. As for the monkeys, Well, one night, as I was falling asleep, I heard the washing machine thud, thud, thudding louder and louder, the sound and thumping vibrato moving through the bones of the old house, and gently shaking my bed. I'm Becca Cahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag's Tales of Terror.
2: In the winter of 2003-2004, I was a caretaker at Jawbone Flats, an old mining camp. Every winter, we got snowed in. By snowed in, I mean it is 14 miles from the end of the pavement to Jawbone Flats, via unplowed gravel road. The first 11 miles are fairly wide open, usually passable on snowmobile. Then you get to a locked Forest Service gate. Inside the gate, the road narrows and the forest canopy thickens. The snowpack becomes irregular, especially on the road, because it never really freezes. There are creek holes, fallen trees, so once there's two and a half feet of snow and a couple of trees down, the last three miles into camp are passable only on ski or snowshoe. That winter, we had about ten feet of snow on the ground. My wife, Julia, the other caretaker, Adam, and I had been snowed in for five months. My father who was always worried about me, bought me a snowmobile to shuttle in supplies. We weren't starving by any means, but we'd run out of the special things, like maple syrup, peanut butter, bacon, beer, and whiskey. The stuff that makes life really good when you're snowed in. I planned to skin out, pick up the snowmobile, and use it to shuttle supplies to the gate. Adam and Julia would meet me there, and the three of us would pack the supplies the rest of the way into camp on skis. To this day, I don't think there's any cell service in that valley, and camp doesn't have a landline, just a really basic ship-to-shore radio. Sometimes it worked fairly consistently, sometimes it didn't work at all. So if I failed to show up on time, Julia would continue out to Henline Mountain, the halfway point between camp and the end of the pavement. If I didn't show up at all, she would just ski back into camp. The weather was really, really bad when I left at 5 a.m. White rain. 31 degrees, 32 degrees maybe. Not really snowing, not really raining. It had been like that for about a week and a half, so the surface of the snow was somewhere between mashed potatoes and road tar. We get some fairly strong westerly winds coming up that valley, especially in the early spring. It was just really unpleasant. I mean, it would have been pleasant if you were sitting inside in front of a warm fire reading a book to look out and say, oh, wow, it's raining and blowing sideways. But when you're trying to get something done, like haul peanut butter and bacon so that you can have waffles with peanut butter and bacon, it's not quite so pleasant. I drove into town picked up the snow machine, bought supplies, and made it back to the trailhead around three in the afternoon. The days were getting longer, but still fairly short. I loaded the snowmobile and went to start it. The snowmobile would not start. I kept trying until I broke the starter cord. I didn't have radio communication from where I was. It's kind of down in a hole, and I couldn't hit our repeater, so I couldn't tell Julia or Adam I was having trouble. I drove back into Salem to my friend Ray's shop. We fixed what was ailing the machine. I loaded it back on the trailer and went up to a friend's house to spend the night. I trusted that everyone was going to stick with the plan. I ate a meal, had a couple beers, and was going to go to sleep. Kind of at the last minute, I thought, well, maybe I should try to reach somebody at camp and make sure things are okay. I eventually got Adam on the radio, asked if everything was alright. He told me that everything in camp was alright, but that Julia wasn't back yet. They'd gone to the gate together and stuck with the original plan. I didn't show up on time, so Adam had gone back to watch the power system at camp, and Julia continued to hike out to Henline Mountain. I was worried, very, very worried. Julia is a strong hiker and skier, very familiar with the terrain. The weather had started to get worse. It was blowing 25 to 30 and raining sideways. You could only see about 40 feet in front of you. The only thing I could think of was that she had wandered off the road in the dark. There are all kinds of things one could wander off or into. Large holes, deep ravines, boulder fields. I jumped in my pickup and started heading up the road back to the end of the plow. I was just going to get on the sled in the middle of the night and go look for her. I had almost gotten to the end of the pavement when I saw her on the side of the road. She had walked to Henline Mountain. She had waited too long for me to get there, and then realized she had forgotten her headlamp. It had gotten dark, and she didn't want to try to hike back up into camp. When you're on the road outside the gate, at least you have small patches of brown and dirt that you can kind of navigate the road by. She followed the road out, but she really couldn't see anything. And it's seven miles, so she was really mad at me. Very, very mad, and very wet. We got her warmed up and got a little sleep. The next morning, she wanted to go into town, so I set out to haul the supplies in alone. It was actually a pretty nice day. Sunny, pretty hard surface. I was making good time. I got up to the low side of Henline Mountain, probably three-quarters of a mile from where we were supposed to meet. And there, in Julia's ski tracks, were the biggest mountain lion tracks I've ever seen. I crouched in the snow to get a better look. Each print was bigger than my hand with my fingers extended. We really hadn't gotten any rain after around midnight, so they were very fresh. You could see the individual toe marks. The cat had followed her for close to two and a half miles, in the dark.
1: My father and I have canoed and camped all over the East Coast for as long as I can remember. In July of 2000, we headed west for a guided canoe trip down the Missouri River, along the White Cliffs, and into the Badlands. We used an outfitter who was familiar with the country and handled the logistics. The trade-off for the convenience is you don't know the other people going on the trip. They could be nice. They could be party animals. We met our group for the first time in Fort Benton, Montana. It was big. Two guides, a group of seven friends, a husband and wife from Chappaqua, New York, and a freelance writer named Jeff Thompson, and his 14-month-old son, Andrew. Immediately there was concern about having a toddler on our dream vacations, and my image of the trip didn't include a screaming infant or the scent of vomit, but off we went together. As we ate dinner along the riverbank the first night, Jeff and I got to talking. He knew I worked for a newspaper. We talked about his writing for magazines and papers, how he traveled and met outfitters, then helped create websites for their companies. As the night grew darker and we could see each other less and less, he explained why he was going down the river with Andrew. Ruma, his wife and Andrew's mother, had died in March from a brain tumor. Well, I felt like a jerk for being annoyed his son was on the trip. I told my dad Jeff's story my dad told some of the others. The ice was broken. Our hearts went out to them. Suddenly Andrew had 13 aunts and uncles watching out for him, holding him, and helping him take some tentative first steps. The next night Jeff opened up more as we watched the satellites pass far above us. He'd been in the Canadian Navy, worked on subs, he went to Bangladesh to help the Canadian Embassy set up computer networks. There he got involved with a nonprofit and he met and married Ruma. After moving to the US, Ruma started having seizures, but the doctors couldn't find anything. After Andrew was born, they headed to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. The doctors finally found a tumor, but the treatment made her so sick and she didn't want to go through it, and she died. With tears in his eyes, Jeff's voice choked over some of the words. Since her death, he said, he and Andrew had drifted from one place to another, canoeing, camping, trying to create some closure. Everyone was very quiet. I couldn't imagine how tough it would be to lose your wife, yet still keep it together to raise your son. Back in Fort Benton, I gave Jeff my info. We talked about canoeing down the Elk River in Tennessee in the spring. As we parted ways, Jeff said they were headed west to the Yellowstone River for more canoeing. Three weeks later, the email started flying among our group. Jeff had been arrested in New York after visiting the couple from Chappaqua. They became suspicious after some of Jeff's statements didn't add up. The police stopped him for driving without a seatbelt. They found a switchblade, and Jeff's ID did not match the van's registration. The police took him in for questioning. It didn't take long for him to confess. Jeff murdered Ruma during an argument at a Minnesota campground. In a calculated move, he drove her body to Tennessee and hid her on his own land. Diapers buried in the same spot show Andrew was there too. As the details kept trickling in, I was devastated to realize that one day Andrew would learn that his father had killed his mother. I couldn't believe the web of lies Jeff had spun. There was no cancer. She didn't want to live with him anymore and she wanted to go back home to Bangladesh. Jeff wasn't even from Canada. He'd been in the U.S. Navy. There was a first wife, three other children, and an arrest for kidnapping. I admit that I fell for Jeff's story, hook, line, and sinker. For me, meeting new people is one of the perks of being outdoors, and I extend friendship and trust based on our adventures together. I'm different now. Jeff is always in the back of my mind. He stares at me from across the campfire, making me wonder, what do I really know about these people sitting next to me? Are they as nice as they seem? Or is one a murderer on the lamb?
3: A cool breeze blew west to east across the Chesapeake Bay, fanning the flames of a campfire I and a dozen students had burning on the beach. It was the end of a long day at the outdoor school where I worked. Having canoed through swamps and zipped down zip lines, we wrapped up the day on the beach after a night hike through the woods. Just as the yellows and reds of sunset faded across the bay, the stars began peeking out of the night sky, and our fire warmed and rose to life. The kids gathered around the fire and immediately began discussing the forbidden topic. "'Who knows any scary stories?' Sadly, I was professionally obliged to interrupt. Cries of disappointment rose from the circle of illuminated faces, and as they insisted a memory emerged in my head, as if rising from dark water, becoming sharper, more vivid. It was a memory I had not visited for many years. For as long as I remember my family would vacation on Lake Dunmore in Vermont it's a beautiful lake surrounded by green mountains not too many houses we would stay in a cabin that sat right on the lake growing up there was measured by the various tests we would pass each summer when I was five I passed the pushing test I didn't panic when I fell off the dock while fishing my younger brother two years later "'passed the same test when my dad called him over to look at catfish, "'and then pushed him in. "'Passing the push-in test meant that you were old enough "'to be on the dock by yourself, "'having shown that you wouldn't panic and drown if you did fall in. "'When I was fourteen, I flipped a kayak, "'climbed back in, and paddled to shore. "'Passing the kayak test meant I could now paddle "'outside the small cove that the cabin sat on. "'As we grew older on Lake Dunmore, our parents would motor us out to the cliffs, a 15-foot-high boulder that sat on the water's edge. We'd climb around the back of the rock and jump off over and over again. The water below the cliffs was extremely deep, and as we got older we'd jump without life jackets to try to dive to the bottom. But we were never able to touch it. When I was 18 and my brother was 16, we loaded up the kayaks and headed across the lake to jump off the cliffs. We paddled for an hour or so before pulling our boats up onto shore next to the cliffs. The sun reflected the contrasting blue sky and white clouds perfectly off the lake, and we had the jumping cliffs all to ourselves. We climbed the back of the boulder, a mosquito-infested gully that was cold and dark compared to the day. Seconds later we made the first of many jumps off the cliff, and as always we never touched the bottom. Eventually, we stopped atop the cliff to warm up. We were warm in the sunlight, and the lake was a mirror that day. Its flawless surface was painted with the rolling green mountains around us. But despite the view, we found ourselves watching the black water below us. A few seconds later, no view could distract us, because rising up from the depths was a white shape. At first we were sure it was a reflection on the water, but as we watched we realized that this was a defined shape, appearing square at first. And as it rose and turned towards the surface it became more and more familiar. A white letter, H. It was maybe four by four inches and sat just below the surface for just a second before sinking back down out of sight. "'Did you see that?' my brother and I asked each other, but there was no mistaking. It looked like it had belonged on a fridge, or a teacher's corkboard, but instead it had appeared to us, and then disappeared just as suddenly. Our eyes remained fixed on the point where the H had sunk into when, a minute or two later. Another white shape began to rise up. It, too, turned towards the surface before sinking back down. Minutes later, another letter appeared, then disappeared, and another. H E L P There was no mistaking what we had seen. We kept watching, waiting for more, but nothing came. After several minutes in silence, we calmly climbed back down the boulder, got into our kayaks, and paddled home. I'm not sure either of us ever mentioned it to our family. We finished the week at the lake, and then came back the next year to jump off the cliffs again as if nothing had happened. At the time, it hadn't scared us at all. It was just a weird thing. The next morning, I emailed my brother. The memory was too strange and too long forgotten. I was half sure I'd made the story up on the spot. Cal, I wrote, do you remember being on the top of the jumping cliffs in Vermont and seeing white letters floating in the water? Yes, I do. Why do you ask? He wrote back. Do you remember what they spelled? It was help, wasn't it? Yeah, I wrote. That's what I remembered too.
0: Special thanks to Micah, Trey, and George for sharing their tales of terror. And a thank you to everyone that wrote in. Music today by Weekend, Black Buddha, John Carpenter and Alan Howarth, and Raines. You can download the cuts for free at our website, www.dirtbagdiaries.com. The Diaries wouldn't be possible without the support of Patagonia. They are keeping their election mantras simple this year by voting for the environment. I'll be voting for the environment because I love quiet and wild places. What about you? Let Patagonia know at patagonia.com. And support comes from Couette Racks, designers of bike racks with superior function and style. The new Vagabond X cargo basket features locking mounts for two bikes, cable lock for gear, and a little flash. You can see their full lineup at KuatRacks.com. As always, New Belgium encourages you to follow your folly. I'm Becca Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirt Pack Diaries.